Right, I think I'm on. So give me one sec, I just need to prepare myself for preaching. So I was a little bit nervous this morning, so I thought maybe, I'm not quite as, actually not quite as nervous as I was last night watching the Boca play, but nonetheless somewhat nervous. So I thought maybe if I wear a mask, it might give me a little bit more courage. Um, but no, actually, um, as you guys all know, we are in these uh, preaching series on the Sermon on the Mount. And in today's teaching, um, Jesus is talking about the key focus of his message, message is about hypocrisy. Uh, and in biblical times, um, the word hypocrite was the same word that they used for a play actor. Uh, and the play actors in biblical times wore masks to depict the character that they were playing. Um, so there, there's a bit of an intro in today's, into today's <laughs> sermon. Um, but um, yeah, as we, um, yeah, as we look at hypocrisy, when we think of a hypocrite um, today, we think of somebody who doesn't practice what they preach. But this kind of hypocrisy that Jesus is talking about in today's text is a little bit different. Um, so we're going to get in and look at that. But we're going to start by just reading the text together. Um, we're going to read the whole text together. It's not too long. Um, but God's word is really powerful. It's life-changing truth. So, yeah, I pray that as we entrust, as we read God's word together today, that it's going to speak to each one of us. Um, so I'm reading from the ESV. Uh, we are in Matthew chapter 6, and we're reading two portions from verse 1 to 8, uh, and then from verse 16 to 18. Um, so if you want to follow with me, it will be on the screen behind us, or if you want to read in your own Bible. Um, Okay, it says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, and they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. Sorry, we've just moved on to verse 16, so jumping to verse 16. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So, a couple of weeks ago, uh, actually, I, I don't know, it was maybe a, a month or more ago, uh, Paul preached a sermon in which he gave us um, just some really helpful guidelines on how to interpret Scripture. And you might all remember that uh, Paul said, don't start with me in 2023, but start with them and there. So when we look at Scripture, we want to see um, who was the Scripture, who was this passage originally uh, addressed to, so who were the original hearers of this word. 
um, but also what was their context. Um, and over the last couple of weeks, uh, just a couple of, of the preachers who have been uh, speaking in this series have given uh, quite a lot of helpful context. Um, I just want to give a few more aspects of the context. There'll be a little bit of repetition, uh, but also just bringing in some other aspects into the context. Um, so if you look at Jesus' total ministry on earth spanned a period of about three years, um, and this Sermon on the Mount was preached quite early on in Jesus' ministry, so it was right near the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Uh, and for me, when I read the, the Gospels, um, I really love this period of Jesus' ministry for a couple of reasons. Um, it's, it's just after Jesus called his disciples, so you have these kind of raw, rough fishermen who have just been called to Jesus. Um, and I think there's, there's this newness and this excitement about everything, about Jesus' message. He's bringing this new, exciting message. You've got these disciples who are all in the beginning of this journey. Um, but also it was up in all of his ministry in this early, early period was surrounding the Lake of Galilee. So we were up in the north of Israel. It was uh, kind of like a fairly rural area uh, away from the big bright lights of Job, of Joburg, of Jerusalem. So away from the, 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 the bright lights of Jerusalem and kind of like I think all these country bumpkins up north there and, and I kind of identify with that. So no, no um, offense to anyone from Joburg, but like I love this kind of country vibe. Um, and Jesus was performing these incredibly powerful miracles. He was healing the sick. He was uh, casting out demons. He was teaching this powerful truth. Um, so I just get a sense of the excitement and the newness of just everything that Jesus is bringing. Um, but also later in Jesus' ministry, as he goes towards Jerusalem, um, to me there's kind of like this heaviness as Jesus is starting, as the cross, the impending cross starts to weigh on him, and there's more and more oppression later in his ministry from the religious leaders of the day. Um, yeah, so anyway, I just love the vibe that I get from this early part of Jesus' ministry. Um, so... As we look at the context of this Sermon on the Mount, um, as Sharon said last week and Paul also said in his sermon, the primary audience for the Sermon on the Mount was the disciples. So Jesus' disciples, these fishermen who had recently just hung up their nets to follow Jesus, um, had come to Jesus and they had said to him, they had asked, asked Jesus to teach them. Um, but at the same time, there were um, thousands of people that were following Jesus in this time because of the miracles that he was performing and because of the powerful truth that he was preaching. Um, and there were people from, if you look at the Gospels, from all over Israel that were following him. And if we look at the end of the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 7, verse 28, um, it seems that many of those that were following were listening in to this conversation where Jesus was teaching his disciples. So they were kind of, the primary audience was the disciples, but the crowds were listening in. So chapter 7, verse 28, it says, And when Jesus had finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. But if we look at Jesus' audience, um, they were probably almost exclusively Jews or Jewish people. Um, they were maybe completely exclusively Jewish people. Um, so the Jewish people were people who um, were a nation that, uh, that worshipped God. They uh, believed in the Bible. They had the Old Testament. Um, and their whole society was really kind of... Um, religion was at the center of their society. It was very much part of their everyday life. 
um, and biblical adherence and adherence to biblical truth and to the Jewish religion was seen as a good thing in society. So everybody in society was very focused on um, yeah, the Jewish religion and on God, and they knew God. So Jesus' audience, they, as he was speaking the Sermon on the Mount, they knew God, be it the disciples or even maybe some of those listening in. Um, and I'm sure for some of the people in the crowds, um, if you think of where they came from as, as people of the, of the Jewish faith, um, for some of them it might have been sort of like empty religious practice, um, but I'm sure, no doubt, that many, that there, that there were many in the crowd as well who, um, prior to this maybe had sincere faith. Um, but they were really, uh, a religious people who knew God and who knew God's word. Now, if we compare that to our South African context, I think traditionally in South Africa, um, South Africa is really traditionally, uh, it's a Christian country. Um, so, our laws and our our government and everything are founded on Christian principles, but likewise, if we think traditionally in South Africa, and I think in, in many of our sectors of our South African and within our different cultures, um, going to church was seen as a really good thing. I mean, particularly in the, Afrikaans, in the Afrikaans culture, that's what you did on Sunday. You know, Sunday, everyone goes to church, and there was very much a feeling that we were in a Christian country. Um, and I think there are still, while there's still sort of aspects or remnants of that in our country which are still true, um, I feel that we are, have very rapidly, uh, to a great extent, moved almost into a state where we're now almost like in a post-Christian society. So I think in large sectors of our South African society, we're almost post-Christian now. So where we see that... Um, there's a lot of atheists, and for a lot of sectors of society now, if you profess faith in God, people would see you as like crazy, or they would just see you as mad, or they would, um, even in this cancel culture, um, you know, people are going to be uh, looking down on you. And if we look at God's truth, a lot of people in our society don't believe in God's truth anymore. So when we live according to biblical values or we express biblical values, we might actually get quite a lot of uh, maybe ridicule or disbelief um, so in that respect, I would say that our modern South African culture probably increasingly differs from that of the culture of these hearers that were living in a sort of society that, that honored God and the Bible, or at least adhered to, to, to God and the Bible. Um, so, yeah, this being said, before we, before we get into the text... Um, I also just wanted to remind us, um, as Paul preached in his opening sermon... He said that as we, and I just want to remind us of this, as we look at the Sermon of the Mount, um, Jesus, when he preached the Sermon on the Mount, he was preaching it not as a list of rules and guidelines to become saved. Um, so this is not a list of what you need to do, all the boxes you need to tick to become saved, but rather it's a list of guidelines or instructions from a loving Father as to how the already saved should live. So if we look at the beginning of the text um, that Paul preached, um, you know, we read all of those in the Beatitudes, all of the blessings, that God wants blessings for us. He wants us as Christians to live a blessed life. And as we read this text, let, let's remember that this is from our loving Father, and this is what He wants for us. He designed us. He knows what makes us tick. He knows that if we live in a certain way, it's going to be for our good. It's going to be for our blessing. So these are not a list of rules to spoil our fun uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, but rather it's guidelines for how to live our best life. Um, so I really want us to just be cognizant of that. Um, so as we read 
um, the opening bit of the text, um, as we get into the text now, this, this opening line in verse 1, I think, really sums up um, everything that Jesus is saying, the core message of today. So let's read verse 1 together, Matthew 6, uh, chapter 6, verse 1. Um, Jesus said, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So that really succinctly sums up the core of Jesus' message and the focus of his message in this portion of text or teaching. Um, so there's two things here that we see, um, and I think these, yeah, these two, two things certainly to me stand out as the focal points of this message. And the first one is this, is that when we worship God, we should worship God from the heart for, for God alone, um, not for recognition from other people or to be seen by other people. And this is the hypocrisy that Jesus is talking about. So that's the first thing. When we worship God, we worship him from the heart for God alone, for his glory and not to be seen by other people. And then the second focal point is that Jesus promises rewards to those people that worship him in this way from the heart. So there's the promise of rewards. So these are the two focal points of the, of, of the message, and we're going to kind of unpack those as, as we go through today's message. But to illustrate this point, Jesus uses um, three examples of different forms of worship. Um, which were common in the Jewish time, of the Jewish religion of the time, um, but also still very much part of our own worship to God now, today. So Jesus used these three uh, uh, different ways of worship him, uh, worshiping him as examples to illustrate his point on, on how we should worship God. And those three aspects are giving to the needy and prayer and fasting. So Jesus speaks about these three to illustrate his point. Um, and as you would have heard in the text, um, in each one of these, when he speaks about giving and prayer and fasting, uh, each portion of that text follows exactly the same structure. So in that sense, it's quite repetitive that the, exactly the same structure comes through and the same message comes through. So the first practical application that I want to make out of this text for us um, is that we spoke a little moment ago just about the context of this text, but also that in South Africa we're living increasingly in a post-Christian culture. So I think for me, when we look at this text, um, I just want to recognize that for, for, for us as Christians, I think how we behave out there in the world compared to how we behave in here in the church with one another, I think to me is quite different. And I think there are two different tendencies um, so I think when we are out there in the world, in this kind of post-Christian culture, I think we're not in the same position as the Jews anymore where they were tempted because, you know, the Jewish religion and God was seen as something good in society. They tended to, to live out their religion for everyone to see in a kind of boastful way, or that was what Jesus was warning against here. But for us, in this post-Christian society, I think rather the danger and the temptation for us is to rather hide our faith. Um, I think that is, or certainly for me, that, that's, that's more the temptation when I'm out in the world. You know, this kind of concept of being like undercover Christians when we're out there in the world. Um, I don't know if you guys uh, can identify with this, but it's the kind of situation where you're at the office and you're going to go to the coffee pot to get yourself some coffee and one of your colleagues comes to you and says, oh, where were you this weekend? 
And you were like, no, I was at uh, Simonsburg campsite. And they were like, oh, okay, yeah, no, I don't really like camping. It's not really my thing, you know, tents and all that. It's like kind of horrible. And you're like, no, well, we weren't like in tents. We were kind of like in dormitory, like, you know, chalet dormitory type vibe or whatever. And they're like, oh, that sounds interesting. Like, who are you with? And you're like, well, you know, it was kind of, um, yeah, uh, it was like, um, you know, it was kind of like a, like a <coughs> church, <coughs> church thing. Um, so I don't know if you guys can identify, but that's kind of like the feeling that we have sometimes when we're out there in the world. So, um, yeah, to me out there in the world, the, the danger is more that we tend to hide our faith. Um, but Jesus calls us to take the gospel out and to, um, yeah, he, t- he calls us to take the gospel out into the world. And if we're going to hide our faith and if we're going to be closet Christians, kind of like these uh, closet Christians out in the world, we, we, we're not going to be able to get his gospel out there. So um, I think for me, that's one of the, the, the first applications from this te- text. And you know, we, I think we really need to, for each of us, if we feel that temptation to hide our faith and be closet Christians out there in the world, I want to encourage us to pray and ask God each for, for faith and the courage to, to actually live out our faith in an attractional way when we're out there in the world. But um, when we talk about within the church, then I think it's a totally different kettle of fish. And I, I think certainly for me, when we're within the church, I really sometimes feel the, that kind of pressure coming through to live out our faith, uh, to be seen by others. Um, so, yeah, I do think there that that, that, that danger that Jesus is warning, of is warning us of is very prevalent. So within the church... Um, I think there's a great pressure sometimes to kind of be want to seen, be seen as a good Christian. Um, so if we let's just look at these examples here that uh, Jesus is talking about. Um, <clears throat> and if we look at the first example, I spoke earlier of the three different kinds of worship that Jesus was t- talking about. And the first one is giving. Uh, and, and giving is, is, a, is a form of obedience to God that he calls us to. But it's also really as we give, it is a form of worship. Um, so if we look at giving, I definitely can identify that it's an area where sometimes when we give, there is a temptation to give, to be seen by others to give. Um, if we take for an example, if we look in the world, if you look at these billionaire philanthropists, uh, if they fund, uh, let's say, the building of a hospital, then the billionaire philanthropist often would want the hospital named after them. So they want, you know, they want to receive the kudos, they want everyone to know that they've spent a couple of hundred million in building this hospital. Um, but even in the church, I think there is a definite danger when we give sometimes to want to be seen by others. And I think for me, there are three little kind of like telltale signs. Like if we examine our heart when we give, I think there's three little telltale tell signs that might just kind of show us that maybe when we give, uh, our motives are not completely pure. And I think one of those is when we give and we don't, uh, maybe we have that feeling that the person that we've given to hasn't really shown much gratitude. Then we're like, yeah, you know, we feel a bit miffed. It's kind of like cheapers. You know, I've given this person money and they haven't even said thank you. You know, they haven't shown any gratitude. Uh, that to me is like a little bit of a warning sign because if we feel that's kind of sense, it's like, well, you know, are we giving to get you know, gratitude from that person or is it just for God alone? So that to me would be like a little warning sign. I think the other one is if we examine our heart when we give and we feel just like a little bit of pride, maybe even it's subconscious, but yeah, you know, I'm, 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 I'm pretty good. Look at this money that I've given cheap, you know, God must be so proud of me. Um, and then the third one is just that little telltale sign that might be a sign that our, that our motives are not pure is 
um, if we give and um, we just have this feeling that we want other people to know that we've given, you know, that's just a telltale. Why do we want them to know? Well, that's because we want to somehow, you know, we want to just get some sort of recognition for the fact that we're giving. So I think all of these are just little telltale signs that if we examine our heart that our motives for giving might not be completely pure. Now, I want to say that, um, you know, we, 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 all of us, um, though God has changed our hearts and though he's made us new people, um, until we go to heaven, there's always going to be those sinful tendencies that rise up in us. So our motives typically tend not to be pure. Now, the solution to these impure motives is not not to give because our motives aren't pure because then we'll, you know, we'll never be obedient. Um, so even though these unpure motives are going to rise up in us, uh, we should still be giving. But what I do want to encourage us is when we give is just to examine our hearts and just examine when these little sinful thoughts come up um, or these little warning lights that our motives might not be pure. It's just to recognize those impure motives, just recognize them, take those thoughts captive and actually just ask forgiveness for it and just ask God to just, yeah, just that, uh, recognize that we give to his glory alone. So it's just taking those little sinful thoughts captive as they as they come up. Um, and I think certainly for Ali and I, when we give, um, there's this concept that we read of here that Jesus talks about, that when you give, let your left hand not know, uh, not know what your right hand is doing. So certainly we find it really helpful whenever we give um, to give anonymously, because as soon as you give anonymously, then all of those temptations fall away. Because when nobody else knows you're giving, there just cannot be another ulterior motive. So we find that really helpful. So if we're giving, if we feel prompted to give to someone, for example, we might put that money in an envelope and we might give it to somebody else and say, please give this to so-and-so and just tell them it's from a, you know, somebody who wants to bless them, who wants to remain anonymous. Or, you know, if you've got their bank account details, just put the money in the account with some anonymous reference. And any giving, whether it's to One Hope, whether it's to another mission organization or whatever, we typically just put some sort of an anonymous uh, um, uh, reference so that, um, and, and that for, for us just really helps um, check our, our motives. So I don't think it's, it's like this um, legalistic thing to rigidly apply um, in, in every circumstance because it's not always possible, but certainly this concept of not letting your left hand know what your right hand is doing when you give can be incredibly helpful in just checking your heart motives. And then, um, as we get on to uh, prayer, um, I think if we look at uh, corporate prayer, so praying in a, in a sort of church setting, whether it's at a, in a life group or whether it's praying at a prayer meeting in church or any time we're in a corporate sort of prayer setting, um, Personally, I feel that there's kind of two um, traps that we can fall into as, as modern Christians in the church today. The one is, and I'm sure many of you will identify this, is when we're in the church and we're praying, um, sometimes we can be very nervous to pray because we feel that maybe our words, we won't use the right words, or maybe we will have incorrect theology when we pray, or maybe there's a fear that we just won't pray eloquently. Um, so sometimes we're scared to pray in church, but... If, if we examine the root of that fear uh, of praying, it's really a fear of what other people think. And if we really think a bit deeper about that fear of what other people think, underpinning that is like a pride. It's a pride that you want to look, you want, you want to pray right, you want to look good. Um, and there's a, there's a prideful element to that fear. 
But, but conversely, if you've been in church a long time and you are become comfortable praying in public, uh, I think equally we can get to this point where we actually consciously or subconsciously kind of can get a bit, gee, I am really a good prayer. I'm, I'm like, yeah, I can pray. Huh? I can use all the right words. Um, you know, gee, when I pray, I really sound spiritual. Um, and, and, you know, there's like a, a conscious or a subconscious pride that, that can arise. Um, so I think that this warning that Jesus gives here of, of praying to him alone, I think it is something that we actually, uh, a trap that we can fall into. Uh, and again, like I said earlier, I believe that if these thoughts rise up, either, either, either of fear in terms of what will other people think if I don't pray well, or, or maybe just a pride that you know, I'm a good prayer, I think we just need to again recognize these thoughts, just confess them to God, and just remind ourselves of God's truth, that when we pray, we're praying to God alone. Um, yeah, and I love what Jesus says here. He says, when you pray, do not babble like the pagans do with many words. Um, and even in the church context, I think sometimes we can get into a habit of being very wordy and, you know, with all our spiritual lingo and getting, you know, just, I think, it's, yeah, there's sometimes is, is a temptation to pray in these kind of really wordy, super spiritual ways. Um, but what I want to encourage us is when we pray, like Jesus encourages us here, just pray simply from the heart. So just pray simply, mean what you say and say what you mean. Um, and even when you pray, just almost see it as a conversation between just like two people. Like if you and I were having a conversation, just pray in the same way. Just keep it simple. Mean what you say and say what you mean. And I think it will also help us in terms of that fear uh, of, of what will other people think when we pray. Just keep it simple, just like any conversation. And I think that can be, that can be really helpful. Jesus also talks here about um, when you're praying to go into your room and close the door and pray in secret. Um, and I think there's two things I want to highlight here. The first is, is that Jesus talking about going into your room and closing the door and praying in secret doesn't, uh, Jesus is by no means, I believe, meaning here that we shouldn't pray together corporately and in public because I think that's a vital part of our faith. Uh, we see this in the New Testament church in, in Acts um, with the New Testament Christians where it said that they met daily in, in each other's houses and they devoted themselves to prayer and to the apostles' teaching and to the breaking of bread. So we see this corporate prayer as a daily part of the New Testament Christian life. Um, and I think throughout Scripture we see corporate prayer as something which is valued and important. But at the same time, I believe that our personal prayer life, going into our room and closing the door and praying in private, is, I'm, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to say that one is more important than the other, but it is absolutely vitally important. And I would almost say that your personal prayer life is more important than your corporate prayer life, even though both are important. Um, and if we as Christians are not spending daily time uh, or regular time, but preferably daily time, committed with our door closed in our room, praying to God. Um, I want to say that if, 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 if that's not a practice that you are regularly practicing, your faith is going to be, uh, I'm going to use a strong word, but it will be emaciated. We need to be, if we're going to be in a strong relationship with our Father and in a strong room, these are, these are God's guidelines for us to live a blessed life and a good life. And, and part of that is we need to be in prayer, as Jesus said, in our, in our room with the door closed, just us and the Father. Or, you know, whether you like to pray when you're walking in the mountains or wherever it is. 
uh, that really ought to be and should be a, 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 a vital part of our Christian walk. If we get on to um, fasting, um, I think this one is a, is a slightly more interesting one to me because for me personally, I do really um, identify with this concept both with giving and prayer that I could have ulterior motives and that I could do both of those to get recognition from other people. With fasting, personally, I don't feel that same kind of pressure. Um, and I think there could be a number of reasons for it. But I also wonder, as a modern church, I don't know that we um, place the same emphasis or value on fasting as we do, for example, in prayer and giving or maybe even being in the Word. I think maybe we've lost a little bit of the um, the focus or the importance of, of fasting. Um, so... Yeah, certainly as One Hope, uh, those of you who are a regular part of One Hope, you will know that once a month uh, we do fast as a church together. Um, and um, so it is something that we do practice. But I don't know in the church at large, at large if there's a much of a focus on it. And I think there's many, many believers who never fast. Um, and it's interesting that we see, in fact, we see it with all three of these spiritual acts of worship. But we see it here with fasting that Jesus says, when you fast... So there's this implicit in Jesus' statement, when you fast, there's this understanding that as, as believers that we will fast. Um, and we see this also with Jesus and his disciples. Um, during this time of the ministry, um, John, um, the John the Baptist's disciples came to Jesus and said to him, well, you know, we're fasting, but we see that your disciples don't fast. Why is that? And Jesus says, well, they're not fasting now while I'm with them, but when I go up to heaven, they will fast. So, you know, to me, there's the six that Jesus says, you know, that they will fast. And it's, so it's, it's a part of our spiritual life that we, that we will fast or should fast and that it's a good thing. Um, I think certainly for me, in terms of fasting, what I find really helpful, um, I think firstly just to say that when you fast, it's, it's really important to, during that time of fasting, for whatever per length of period it is, that you devote time to being in prayer while you're fasting and being in meditation and being in the Word. Because if you're fasting and you're not in prayer and the Word, then it's not a fast, it's just a diet. Which, yeah, If you want to lose weight, that's fine, but it's, it's not really going to achieve much otherwise. So, um, yeah, it's important during that time to spend time in the Word and in prayer and meditation. Um, but for me, as I do that, what I find really powerful is just the fact that my hunger continuously, well, my hunger reminds me of my physical need for food, and at the same time as I feel that physical need for food, it reminds me of my spiritual reliance on God and my need for God. And it's just that sort of prompting um, throughout the day if I'm fasting, just that reminder, why am I hungry? Well, it's because today I really want to just spend time focusing on God, focusing on, on my Father. So I find that really helpful. Um, I think for some people... Um, there is a sense sometimes that when you fast that it amplifies your prayers and helps God to hear you better. Um, I'm not so sure of that because I think God always is attentive to our prayers. God always hears our prayers. Every prayer we pray, God hears and he's attentive. So I don't think that, it's, that, that God actually hears us better when we pray but what I, when we fast. But I do actually think what it does, it's more about us, and it's more about our heart attitude, and it really helps us to focus more on our Father. So I really think, for me, that's, that's one of the great benefits of fasting. Um, <clears throat> so Jesus 
used these three examples of different forms of worship to illustrate his point about worshiping from the heart, not to be seen by others. But um, these are just three examples that, that Jesus used in, in his teaching. But the, the same principle applies to many other forms or acts of worship. And one that really comes to mind for me in the church is um, serving in the church. So those of you who are a regular part of One Hope will know that serving in the church is something that we really value in One Hope. So we talk about all hands on deck. Um, and it's a really good thing for us all to serve in the church and to get our hands dirty in serving each other and serving the body. But this is one area where I, I think also there's a great temptation for us sometimes to serve in the church, not for God alone, but, but to be seen by others. Uh, and again, I think there's these little uh, telltale signs in our thoughts and our heart which highlight this. I mean, for example, when you're serving in the church and then you just get this, you know, you get a bit bleak because no one said thank you. Or you just have the sense of, you know, feeling a bit bleak because you just feel that you haven't been recognized and people are just taking you for granted. And I know for myself this happens quite easily. But that's for me, again, one of those telltale signs that maybe, you know, I'm not serving for God alone. I'm serving, you know, maybe to be seen by others and gain recognition from others. Um, now, by all means, I'm not saying that when we serve in the church that we shouldn't be thanked and it's not good to thank people. I think by all means, it's, it's, it's a wonderful thing that when we serve in the church, we should be thanking one another. We should be encouraging one another. Um, but that's not why we serve. And, um, yeah, we certainly can, can check our heart there. But likewise... You know, when we serve, I think also it's quite easy to get a little bit, I wouldn't say prideful, but maybe that sense of, yo, I'm a, I'm, I'm a good Christian. Look at, you know, the hard graft I'm putting in. And, you know, wanting to be seen by others. Um, so again, like all of these other acts of worship, I think it's just, um, just testing our motives and our hearts. And as these little sinful thoughts pop up, just to recognize them and again take them captive. Um, I've spoken quite a bit this morning about taking thoughts captive, um, and yeah, I thought it might just be a little bit helpful to, to uh, just elaborate a bit on what I mean by this concept of taking thoughts captive. Uh, we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, it says, we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Um, and for me, this, this concept of taking thoughts captive um, I think with any form of sin that we have in our life, uh, typically by the time we act out in any act of disobedience or sin, typically that is preceded often by days or weeks or an extended period of entertaining that sinful thought within us. So take, for example, if you harbor anger or bitterness in your heart, um, you know, that stays in your heart for a long time and it's unseen, but ultimately uh, it can then come out in an expression of actually expressing that anger in a sinful way against somebody else or that bitterness against somebody else or any kind of sinful temptation, any kind of uh, sinful desire that we have. You know, it kind of stays in our mind and our head for quite a time uh, until we actually act on it. And I think like all of these things, you know, I think all of these, you know, uh, conducting our acts of worship for others to be seen, the root of that is this pride of wanting other people, you know, trying to get kudos from people. Um, and so any of these sins, they start within us, in our mind and in our attitudes. Um, so to me, taking thoughts captive is really just that practical thing of actually dealing with our heart motives, just our inner heart motives, and not allowing those sinful thoughts and desires to kind of 
just live rent-free in our head day after day. Um, so yeah, I think it's just that practical thing of just checking your heart on a regular basis, just recognizing those sinful thoughts uh, and, and, and heart motives and just taking them to God and just asking Him to um, replace it with God's truth. So it's a conscious thing of recognizing the sinful thought, re- consciously reflecting on God's truth for that, replacing the lie with the truth, and then asking God to help us because we do need His help. Um, I think even just practically, sometimes, and I don't know, I'm sure you can identify, sometimes if I uh, identify a sinful thought in my mind, whether it's an anger against someone or, you know, maybe like a, a sinful desire, I try and push it out my head, but it just keeps popping up. It just kind of like it's hard to, to get that out of my mind. Um, but just a, a helpful practice even sometimes in that moment is, is some of you will be familiar with the, the concept in psychology of mindfulness, but it's this being conscious of your physical environment. So in a moment, if I'm trying to take a thought captive and it just keeps popping up and it's, you know, especially if you're lying in bed at night, thoughts have a way of turning. But just focusing on your physical environment, just what am I feeling, what am I touching, what am I smelling, what am I hearing, just doing that for a minute or two just helps take my focus away and then before I know, I've forgotten that sort of unhelpful thought. Um, So that's just a few thoughts there on taking thoughts captive. Um, So as we, um, yeah, moving into just um, towards the end of the sermon, I just want to talk about... Um, this concept of of these different acts of worship um, and and just to remind us again that when Jesus spoke about each one of these examples, he says, "When you so again, like i said it 's implicit in jesus 's words that we will um, practice these acts of worship on a regular basis, um, and I just want to for each one of us be just to challenge you, if you are not regularly practicing these acts of worship in your life, uh, of prayer, of giving, of fasting, of being in God's Word, if we're not practicing them, our spiritual life is going to be, um, like I said the word earlier, it's going to be emaciated. And if you are lacking victory in your, a sense of lack of victory in your life or in your faith, but you're not regularly practicing these acts of worship, then I think don't be surprised. Um, so I just want to encourage you to, to really be practicing these acts of worship regularly. Um, and I think for me, just a helpful example or, or reminder, I think these acts of worship is, is in many respects, there's quite a few parallels with exercise. Um, I think one of those parallels in terms of these acts of worship being like exercise is... Um, Firstly, if, if often, um, if, if you are, if you haven't exercised for a long time, obviously you become very unfit. When you then first try and exercise, like let's say you're really unfit and you go for a run, that first run is going to be a real slog. It's going to be really hard. It's like you're dragging a lump of lead around and it's just like you are, you're suffering. You're not enjoying it. It's hard. Um, but if you persist, it's going to be hard maybe for a week or two. But after two weeks, it becomes easier. And as you, after two weeks, slowly start to get fit, you then start to feel good and you start to enjoy the exercise. And I think similarly with, with these spiritual acts of worship, if, you, if you're not in a regular habit, initially you might find it a little bit hard. So, you know, you might read your Bible in the beginning. It might just be like, flip, this is hard. I'm not really getting a lot of out of this. It's difficult. But I want to encourage you, like exercise, if you continue, or the same in prayer, 
that as you continue, you will get fitter and you will start to uh, feel that, that benefit. Uh, in your life. Um, I think the other thing where, where these acts of worship are a bit like exercise is um, for those of you who exercise, you, you will know that often you, like let's say if you're a runner, when it's, you, you don't feel like going for a run. It's kind of like sometimes it's the last thing you feel like. You know, you'd rather, I don't know, sit in front of the TV or do anything else than go for a run. But when you have been for a run, typically you always feel like you're so glad you did. You're always like typically really happy you did. And I think that's the same with these spiritual acts of worship. I mean, often, um, you know, I would, when I think of my going to spend time, and, and people often refer to it as a quiet time, but my time in the morning of prayer and in the Word, beforehand I'm sometimes like, ah, you know what, maybe I should just, you know, watch my favorite YouTube channel in bed and drink a nice coffee. You know, I think that's, that's, you know, that's what you feel like. But if you actually then take the discipline and get up and go and spend time with the Lord afterwards, you will be glad you did. Um, so I think that's, that's, it's very much like that. So I just want to encourage you, if you're not in regular habits daily of just practicing these, uh, these spiritual acts of worship, like Jesus was saying, close your door, go into your room. Um, I want to encourage you to do that because it's going to really turbocharge your Christian life. It's, it, it, it has an enormous, enormous impact. Then finally, I want to talk about rewards. So I said that in the beginning of this sermon, I said that there's two main uh, focus points that Jesus had from this message. The one was practicing our acts of worship from the heart for God's glory alone. And the second one was speaking about rewards, that if we do that, that God will reward us. Um, so there's a couple of, I just want to read a couple of uh, scriptures uh, from God's word, just talking about uh, rewards. And these are uh, eternal heavenly rewards um, that, that Jesus is, is, is mostly referring to, or God is referring to. So Matthew 5, verse 11 and 12, it says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. Matthew 16:27 For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father and he will repay each person according to what he's done. And then 1 Corinthians 3:13 Each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. So yeah, it's clear to me from multiple texts in the Bible that Jesus does promise us eternal rewards for the way that we live here on earth. Um, what's not for me that clear is what these rewards will look like. It's not very clear to me exactly what these eternal rewards will look like. Um, but one thing that I do know, that knowing our Heavenly Father and knowing how good He is, if I think about these rewards, it just puts a smile on my face because I know it's going to be good. Um, I mean, for me, often the way I think about it, um, think about the best reward you could receive. For each one of us, it's different because we've got different preferences. But think of the best reward you can receive. And whatever heavenly rewards our Father is going to give you one day is going to far, far exceed the best that you can imagine. Um, that's how I look at it. So yeah, Jesus promises us eternal rewards for being obedient and just worshiping him out of our heart um, to him alone. Jesus, I, I don't know if he was referring to this, but... 
um, as well as these eternal rewards, um, in my experience, I have no doubt as well that there are also earthly rewards from the obedience in worshiping God in these ways. There are most definitely earthly rewards, like, um, yeah, like, like I said at the start of this preach, is that, you know, Jesus has given us this guidance because he wants us to live our best life. He wants us to be blessed. Uh, he wants us to receive his blessing. And there is a definite earthly reward of blessing in being obedient to these things. Um, conversely, if we live outside of God's truth and if we live according to Satan's lies, um, it pulls us down and it has very definite, very clear negative consequences for our life. Um, so as well as the heavenly blessings, they are incredible earthly blessings uh, for living in obedience to Christ. Not to say that we won't suffer hardship sometimes, not to say that we won't go through difficulty, um, but life is just like streets better with God than without God. So as we, um, yeah, just bringing us back to where, where, where I started this, this uh, sermon, is that uh, Jesus here was speaking about hypocrisy and Jesus used the word hypocrisy. So the kind of hypocrisy that Jesus is talking about in this text um, is living out our spiritual acts of worship for the be well to be seen by other people and to receive recognition from other people rather than receiving uh, recognition or, or, or doing it to, to God alone. So in closing, I want to leave us with um, a quote from a gentleman called A.B. Bruce. Um, he said this, We are sh to show when we are tempted to hide, and to hide when tempted to show. So I want just each, each of us, let's maybe just take uh, a minute or two just to reflect on that quote. I just think it's so powerful and maybe just allow the Holy Spirit to convict you where you are guilty out there in the world of hiding your faith um, and maybe in the church where you are guilty of um, maybe living out your faith in a way to receive recognition from others. Um, so just spend a few moments in silence and just allow the Holy Spirit maybe to convict you there and then we'll go into communion.